So if you're new, if this is your first time at church, uh, I'd be remiss not to tell you that I am the pinch hitter for Tom. Um, Tom called me about two weeks ago, ironically, right before I was about to go on vacation and said, hey, Scott, if we had a baby, I was like, wait, you're pregnant? Because for announcements, I'm always out. I don't ever hear anything. Um, he said, hey, but we're going to be having, uh, we're going to be having a baby and I need someone to step in. So this week, if I have the baby this week, can you step in? I was like, no, I'm going on vacation. He is like, oh. Then we got back and I was like, you tell Aaron not to have that baby yet because I'm not ready. And thankfully she did. She, she waited a little bit, had the baby. So congratulations to him. A quick note for all of you. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Tom comes up here with basically no notes and he speaks out of memory. And it's really an amazing feat since he does it every week. I'm not going to do that this week. I've got all of my notes. Um, <clears throat> Some of you may have thought I was a one-trick pony. You see me up here playing bass, and you're like, oh, Scott does a great job standing in for an actual bass player. <clears throat> well, now I'm going to do a mediocre job standing in for Tom. So I was talking to Tom, and you know, the, a difficult thing for me was to figure out, um, what do I talk about in one Sunday? What, you know, Tom gets to go through a book. He gets to go through Genesis. So he goes through, and he does it bit by bit. I didn't have that moment, so I don't have that, that time with you. So I had to do one, I had to do one topic. So I was like, Tom, I don't have like, you know, sermons standing by. So what should I talk about? He's like, well, we did John. We're doing the Old Testament. So don't do, don't do that. I'm like, we just eliminated the whole Old Testament. All right. He says, why don't you do something on Paul? Oh, fantastic. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. We'll just narrow it down to 13 books in the Bible. And I really appreciate your help. Uh, so we're going to go through Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, Philippians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. We're going to have we have about thirty to thirty-five days to get it done. Um, I've told I've told Doug to shorten up the the songs at the very end. Um, but in that moment, I was like, you know, Paul is an interesting person to talk about. We've all read, or a lot of us have read Paul's letters, but. Sometimes we forget that Paul is an actual person. And it's, I, don't say that, I don't say that meanly or, or disparagingly. I'm, I'm really noting that with the high schoolers, my goal lately has been to do big kid flannel boards, which is to make the stories of the Bible real to the kids, to give them something to grasp onto, to realize that, hey, what I'm going through, people before me have gone through and come through it stronger for it. And so today we're going to be talking about Paul. We're going to be talking about his transition from Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul. And we're going to be looking at the transformation of a man of zeal. So who is Saul of Tarsus? What do you know about Saul? Where is he from? Where did he grow up? What was his family like? How did he grow up? So Paul was born in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Sicilia is what they called it back then. He was from a city called Tarsus. This is actually important. Paul was a Roman citizen which means that he had freedom that other people residing in Rome didn't have. They could move about freely when you were in Tarsus. Reason for this is Sicily had been very um, loyal to Rome through ages, and so they had, been, they had bestowed basically this honor upon them. Um, so for that reason, Paul and his family up and move in about 5 to 10 AD. They moved to Jerusalem. Would you bring that map up? So you can't really see it very well, but right there at the Aegean Sea, right where it goes into the Black Sea, Right, you're going to see Tarsus, if you keep going down along the Aegean Sea, Tarsus is right where we get to the flat part. Right? Joyce, throw up California. Click the button. 
the button. There it is. Gives you an idea of the size of California in relationship to that area. So interestingly, the, the uh, journey from Tarsus down to Jerusalem is about the distance from Yosemite down to here, down to church. All right, so that gives you an idea of how far he went. 350 miles. That's a considerable journey. He does this about when he's five. Is, you know, it ranges between five and ten. But he does this when he's a kid. Comes down to Jerusalem. Now some people speculate they did this for Paul. They see that Paul's a bright kid, and they want him to have a great teacher. So he comes down south. He sees this, he meets his teacher, Gamaliel. So Gamaliel, we have a, a brief mention of Gamaliel in Acts. So let's read about this. He's a highly respected elder in the church. I'm sorry, in, uh, he's a highly respected teacher among the Jews. Acts 5, 30 through 40, to just kind of give you a, an update as to what's going on. The apostles have been brought in. And they're thinking about stoning them. They didn't want to do it in the public because they were f- afraid that a mob of people might kill uh, the Jewish leadership. So the Jewish leadership is smart. So they bring the apostles in with the idea that, well, if we're going to kill them, we'll kill them in, public, in private. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So he empties out the room. He takes out the apostles. And he says to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to go speak in the name of Jesus. Oh, that's kind of a rough ending to that story. Hey, let him go. Sure, that's a good idea. Let's beat him first. Gamaliel is a man with a cool temper. But more importantly, Gamaliel is a man of God. Gamaliel wants to know, is this the will of God? Because if it is, we should be on their side, not opposing them. Remember, this is Saul's upbringing. This is the foundation of his teaching, is a teacher like this who is truly after the will of God. It's probably safe to assume that a number of the Pharisees alive at that time had been taught by Gamaliel, since Paul would soon become a Pharisee. Saul would have lived in Jerusalem during the time of Christ. He would be intimately aware of Christ's preaching, his miracles, the resurrection of Lazarus, Christ's tirade in the temple market. He would have been in Jerusalem for his crucifixion. He would have felt the earthquake. He would have seen the storm, and he would be intimately aware of the splitting of the veil. All of a sudden, God wasn't separated from the people. That veil was torn. And that has to affect a Pharisee, someone who's been brought up with the idea that they are the intermediaries between the people and God. That's a moment where his power starts to dissipate, him and all the Pharisees. He had a lot of chances to see the truth, but ironically, he was blind to it. Saul is part of this religious order. He's a zealot. But there's two parts of the religious order in Jerusalem. So let's talk real quick about which part he's in. So the Pharisees, they are the zealots. They hate Rome. Man, Rome is terrible. 
Rome is the ones that's, that are putting their thumb down on the country of Israel. And the Pharisees want nothing more than to throw off the shackles of Rome. But then you have another sect, the Sadducees. The Sadducees are more practical than the, uh, than the Pharisees. They're the pragmatists in the group. And what they've done is they've negotiated with Rome and said, Hey, you give us power, give us a police force, and we'll enforce your laws and ours. All right, so that's going to be important here in just a couple minutes. In past reading, current reading, consulting with Tom, I think it's safe to assume that Saul is a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. Paul is a zealot at heart. He may be pragmatic, but he's not a pragmatist. <clears throat> Strangely, the first time we're introduced to Saul is at the stoning of Stephen. In Acts uh, 8.1, Saul consents to Stephen's death. They're about to stone Stephen, and Paul says, yeah, that's a reasonable thing to do. Why don't you go ahead and do that? And so the people rise up and they kill Stephen via stoning. Man, that is a rough way to be introduced to Saul. He's the first person who actively takes up arms to defeat and really crush the Christian church at its infancy. So why the distinction between the Sadducees and Pharisees at this moment? As I've mentioned, Paul's a zealot. His zeal is to burn out the church, to destroy it. Then Saul, Acts 9.1, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests. In Acts 26.10, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I, put my, I cast my vote against them. He just wants nothing more than the destruction of the church. But he has one problem, and this is where I, people think he might have been a Sadducee. He needs a tool. Paul just can't go out by himself with the Pharisees and kill the church. He needs a tool to help them. So he teams up with the high priest. The high priest is from the Sadducee order. He teams up with the high priest and says, hey, I need your police force. I need to do something about this Christian revolution. The Sadducees are looking on saying, man, if this thing gets out of hand, they're saying Christ is king. That might cause some problems with Rome. They're pragmatic. And so for a moment, the two enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who don't like each other, come together because they see a common enemy that they don't like. Saul obtains permission to hunt down Christians and goes house to house in his hunt. Does that sound familiar to anybody? What other place in the New Testament did we see someone go house to house to try and stamp out Christianity before it could start? King Herod, right when he tries to kill Christ as a child. He goes house to house and kills all the male children. And here we see Paul doing relatively the same thing. It's no irony that Saul's obsession with the destruction of the church leads to its expansion. Should you show that side's choice? You can see down that middle, down on the kind of the bottom right-hand side is Jerusalem. That's where the church begins. And you see what happens to the church after Paul's persecution of it. Man, it goes everywhere. So while Saul's trying to stamp it out, it's expanding and growing and getting stronger. A tough part for me when I'm reading the Bible is I go through and I'm looking at the Bible and I struggle to see, to identify with some of the, the people there. You know, I don't really identify with Paul. Paul's a person, yes, but I don't know what ancient times was like. We live in a much different world these days. People haven't changed, but the world has changed drastically. However, I don't, don't really have an emotional connection to Paul, to Saul of Tarsus, I'm sorry. So I was looking back saying, who are some other people that have persecuted the church? Joyce, did you go through the first five? Who are some other people that have gone and persecuted the church? We have Stalin. We have Pol Pot. We have Chairman Mao. 
Kim Jong-un, ill, sorry. Finally, Che Guevara. All people that tried to stamp out the church. And now the difference between these people and Saul is that these are political figures. They aren't religious figures. So I don't think the connection is quite there. However, when I really spend some time thinking about who does Paul, who does Saul really relate to in the minds of the ancient day Christians, I actually did come to a conclusion. So Saul, go ahead, Joyce. So Saul, he's judgmental. He condemns people, right? He has disdain for the Christians. He's prideful. He's filled with rage. And he has murderous intent. Keep going. Saul's zeal has been developed by judgment into hatred for those who don't deserve his hatred. And so the person I really think he identifies with well is Osama bin Laden. When you see Osama's picture, you have an emotional response. Something wells up in you. For me, it's, it's hatred. I can't stand the guy, right? It was every, every American was just waiting for the day we killed Osama bin Laden, right? Now, I would argue to you that the church, the historic church, I'm sure they hated him, but more to the point, they were terribly afraid of him. He was going house to house just waiting to find him, and he had failed in his mission, and the church had spread. Well, that wasn't going to stop Saul, was it? Oh, no. Saul was going to go after them. So Saul gets permission from the high priest to go and hunt down the Christians in Damascus. He's on his way to Damascus. Now, interestingly, what I kind of failed to realize is that Saul, between the point he kills Stephen and he's on the road to Damascus, there's about a two-year gap. For two years, he is killing and imprisoning Christians, terrifying them. Let's go on to Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion. Acts 9, 3 through 8. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, And rise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Interestingly, we have Paul's own account of what happened. Let's read that as well. Acts twenty six fourteen through 18. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those 
who are sanctified by me in faith. So my one quick rabbit trail. Where's Paul's moment of conversion? Do we all agree it's right there? I would say at that moment, Paul's a believer. Would you agree? Well, where's the 13 steps to become a Christian? He doesn't pray the sinner's prayer. He doesn't ask for forgiveness of his sins. He doesn't promise to turn his life around. I don't even think we got a head nod. Christ is, or Saul at that moment is suddenly a Christian. In Acts 9, 10 through 19, Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias replied, Hold up. What? Uh, Lord, I've heard a lot about this guy. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem and uh, now he's here with authority from the chief priest to Bind all who call on, his, on your name. Ananias has a much more measured response than Scott would have had. Scott's response would have been, hey, honey, what do you think about this? Yeah, I agree. No. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that, but uh, I'm out. If God had said, Scott, I want you to go over to, uh, I want you to go over to the Middle East, um, talk to Osama real quick. He's had a vision about you. It's cool. And uh, I want you to bring him home and uh, disciple him a little bit. Scott would have struggled with that command. <clears throat> but the Lord replied, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Now here's an interesting statement from God, I think, to reassure Ananias in his moment of doubt. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Man, you don't want con- humans, I think, just don't want that conversion to be easy. Man, he's done a lot of horrible things to us. And it's almost like God says to Ananias, don't worry. His time will come to pay for what he's done. I don't know if that's really God's meaning there, but it's really interesting that that's what God says to Ananias to reassure him about the decision. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Could you be Ananias to Osama bin Laden? So we've seen Saul, Saul of Tarsus. We've seen zeal driven by judgment. Now we're going to begin to meet Apostle Paul and zeal driven by grace. Paul remains a zealot, but his zealousness changes. Where it's directed changes. I'd like to note that Paul's conversion is not immediate. Paul remains in Damascus for approximately a year. Now, I'm going to go through some years here, right? These are things that have been established by historians, uh, men of the, of the word. They're not exact dates, but they're kind of ideas to just give you a reference to time. He remains in Damascus for approximately a year. Approximately a year. It will be three and a half years before he goes to Jerusalem where he began. When he goes, he goes to meet the apostles. Well, guess what the apostles think? Uh, No. Appreciate that? No. It takes Barnabas bringing the two parties together. 
My guess is the way the, the verbiage in the Bible is, is, is written. The apostles are in hiding, right? The Pharisees haven't stopped their crusade to destroy the church. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees have now taken up arms against Paul and are trying to hunt him down to kill him. The apostles are in hiding. Barnabas finds Paul and takes Paul to the apostles. I'm sure to the chagrin of the apostles. They're like, hey, thanks a lot, Barnabas. We appreciate that. Three and a half years, he's to go to Jerusalem. Paul eventually, over the next couple of years, returns to Tarsus. And he remains in Tarsus for 10 to 14 years. His conversion is not quick. His conversion takes time. What does that time result in? It results in a man of grace. Let's look through some of those things that Christ mentioned to Ananias. In Damascus, a crowd gathers to kill Paul, and he escapes by being lowered down the city walls at night in a basket. In Jerusalem, a crowd gathers to kill him, and he escapes to Tarsus. His response? Paul comes back to Jerusalem multiple times to continue his mission. In Iconium, a crowd plots to stone him, but he escapes. His response? Paul eventually comes back. In Lystra, Paul is stoned, presumed dead, and dragged out of the city. Paul's response, he goes back the next day. In Philippi, Paul is stripped, beaten, flogged, and thrown into prison. His graceful response, he starts a church there and eventually sends one of his letters to that city. In his words, from the Jews, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 27, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep waters. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness. Paul endures it all with grace. What is Paul's response to this persecution? Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all the churches. Through all the toil, through all the misery, through the stonings, through the beatings, his concern is for the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? He cares for the people. Where once that violence would have been met with his own violence, it's now met with humility. He is concerned for the welfare of those people that he used to hunt. What does Paul give up in order to become a Christian? Well, first, he gives up his freedom and his life. Acts 21, 13b, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He even gives up his name. What's in a name? You know, a number of psychological studies have been done about uh, names. Do you know what the most important word in the dictionary is to every single person? There's one. Every person's one most important word is the exact same. The most important word to every single person is their name. But Saul is willing to give it up. 
Remember when God changes Paul's name in the conversion story? You guys remember that? No. Because God doesn't change his name. We don't see Paul's name change until Acts 13.9a. In Acts 13, this is a critical moment because it's depicting the beginning of Paul's first missionary trip to Gentiles. Acts 13.9a is almost an aside. It says, then Saul, who is also called Paul, that's it. And from that moment forward, Paul is no longer Saul. Well, why would he change his name? That, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We have a hard time identifying why. It is believed that Saul's given Roman name was Paul. Saul was an uncommon name in Rome at the time because it's a Hebrew name. So people hear Saul, it doesn't ring to them. But Paul is a common name in Rome. Paul likely actually had three names, like I have three names, Scott Glenn Eichler. Paul probably had three names as well, but he becomes known by only his personal name. Paul, who was once rigid, judgmental, and unbending, has become compassionate, willing to give up anything for his common Christian brother. In Corinthians, Paul puts his commitment to words. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I am become as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I am become as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Paul is willing to become anything to anyone so long as it doesn't require him to sin. He is willing to change. He's willing to adapt. Something that came to my mind, actually, as I was doing this, was been the, uh, the argument about the hijab and should we allow or not allow the hijab. But really what came to my mind was in the military, when they were in the Middle East, the question became, should women in, in the military wear a hijab? Paul would have said, yes. Adopt their customs. Don't let anything stand between you and the message. Give up everything to share the message. Paul's conversion becomes complete. Paul goes from a man of the temple, a man of prestige, power, wealth, to a forlorn tent maker. A man who goes from having everything to having nothing. His life changes from one of rage and fury to one of compassionate commitment to others. As we've seen, he will eventually bear a life of extreme persecution. And he'll bear it for 20 years. Tradition holds that Paul is eventually beheaded by Nero in the mid-60s, giving his last. So who is Apostle Paul? What's the difference? We know there is a difference. But I was still trying to create, I still wanted to in myself create a sense of connection with the new Apostle Paul. How do I create that emotional connection? And I was trying to think of people in recent history who I think relate well to Paul. People that would willingly give up anything to share the message. And so, my thought was, 
Billy Graham. Billy Graham obviously lived a life different than Paul. He wasn't widely persecuted. People weren't out to kill him, as far as I know. But Pastor Graham had all the trappings of power at his disposal, should he want it. And for years, for decades, he never gave into it. He continued his mission faithfully, endlessly, always looking for how he could share the gospel. Rumor has it that he didn't accept a big income from from his mission, even though it collected tons of money. He had every opportunity to go the wrong way. And we've all seen the pastors that do. We've seen how easy it is for them to be corrupted by money, power, fame. But not Billy Graham. Billy Graham stayed on the path. And for it, we all relatively have the same feelings about Billy Graham, no matter where you stand on the Christian spectrum. When it comes to Billy Graham, we all identify with the incredible mission of the man, don't we? Paul changes completely almost. If we look at Paul's new attributes, they're much different. Paul is a man filled with grace, with perseverance, hope. He's humble. He's patient, but most of all, he is filled with love, and not just for Christians. If you look through all of his writings, his love extends out to those who are not Christians, who need the salvation of Christ. Paul's zeal has developed into grace, has been developed by grace into compassion for those who deserve his hatred. You couldn't have a more complete transformation in this life. What do we take away from the juxtaposition? Look at the difference between where Paul started and where Paul ended. Go ahead, Joyce. Oh, here's Paul now. Here's Saul. A man of zeal either way. In the first instance, he's a man of zeal consumed by rage, consumed by judgment. Friends, don't be judgmental of those around you. They don't need your judgment. They know in their hearts what they do is wrong. They need your grace. Be zealous for grace. Have compassion for those who deserve your hatred. Our conclusion, what's the takeaway from this? Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. A number of friends who aren't Christians have told me in the past, oh, God would never take me. But God took Paul. God took our Osama bin Laden and turned him into Billy Graham. Maybe you have a moment long ago, but you expected quicker results. Maybe you lost your commitment along the way. It's easy to start down the road, but we forget that Paul's transformation took 15 to 20 years It wasn't overnight. We see it in the Bible as quick verses here and there. We're like, oh, Paul's converted. He's become superhuman. No. Paul's conversion took time. Getting him to convince existing Christians that he had converted took time. Remember that Paul heard of the miracles. He felt the earthquake. He saw the storm. He was intimately aware of the veil splitting. He was likely there after Christ's death. I don't know if he saw Christ, but I'm certain he he knew people who did. Paul had infinite chances to turn and didn't. God was always after him. God was always reaching out. But Paul failed to extend his hands. 
until the flash of light. If you are not yet a child of Christ, don't wait for your flash of light. That moment may be too late for you to make the change. Convert while you have a chance to make the conversion. Brothers and sisters, who do you see on the Damascus Road? Who do you know that's traveling down that road? Who do you know that you can reach out for? Are you preparing for the moment that you need to be Ananias? Are you extending grace to those who don't deserve it? Paul's life teaches us one unavoidable truth. No one is out of Christ's reach. Christ reaches out for everyone. Some will accept his reach, but many will not. In Saul's moment of judgment and Paul's ministry of grace, Christ was able to make Paul forward his, Christ's, mission. Christ is going to use you one way or another. You can either be the person who extends your hand back and becomes part of that change, or you can fight against it and still be part of the change. Christ depended on his church to help Paul's conversion. The conversion was Christ. The conversion is not yours. It's not mine. It's not what we do. But after the conversion, God gives us a chance to take part in the completion of that conversion. Christ looks to us to accept all who accept his gift, regardless of where they are starting from. We, start our, we struggle a lot right now in our country with sexual sin, and we struggle as Christians to identify with those people. Remember that they are all going to start at the same point Paul did, as an enemy of us. But the moment they convert, they are a brother and sister deserving of our love and compassion regardless of whether they deserve it at that moment. In their moment of conversion, they will not be thoroughly converted. It will take time for them to make their change. Only through our love, compassion, and understanding will God's character be revealed. God will use us if we are willing in his fashioning of his perfect tool. Let's go to prayer. Father God, we thank you for the saving knowledge that Paul was a real person. Paul was flesh and bone. Paul struggled. Paul was just like us. Paul wasn't superhuman. Paul wasn't able to endure all his trials alone, Father. We know that you were there with him. I thank you, Lord, that the Bible is not clean and perfect. I thank you that the heroes you have given us, the examples you have given us, were fallen people, failed people, Father, that you lifted up. I thank you, Lord, that you have conversion in your hands, that it's not incumbent on me, that I am not responsible to convert people to your word, Lord. But Lord, I pray for this church, for this body, for this family, Help us to reach out to those who need that moment of conversion. Help us to extend grace at the moment conversion does occur, Father. 
Help us to remember that conversion isn't instant. Conversion takes time. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us in that mission, Father, that you would give us direction as you did Ananias, that you would reassure us that our path is one of faithfulness, Father, one of grace. I pray that we would be that faithful and graceful family, Father, to all those who come through our door, Lord, regardless of where they are in the journey, whether they've started on the journey or not. Let us be filled with grace, compassion, and love for them, Father. But most of all, Father, let them see our grace, compassion, and love for them, Father. Let them see you through us. I pray, Father, that in that moment, they would see that they will become your tool. Help us to build each other up as your perfect tools. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.